0: The reading this morning is taken from Matthew, chapter 28, verses 1 to 10. The resurrection of Jesus. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord, descending from heaven, came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. This is my message for you. So they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came to him, took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers and sisters to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Amen. If you are able please stand for the next hymn which is jesus christ is risen today hallelujah
1: friends let us greet one another with the easter response christ is risen he is risen indeed hallelujah happy easter to you all bye ember see you in a bit bye nova So I wonder what you think about resurrection, Uh, not specifically the resurrection of Jesus, although we will come on to that. I'm thinking more about, you know, the general idea of resurrection. I mean, as a Christian, belief in resurrection comes pretty much as part of the territory, I would have thought. And certainly, if you've ever been part of a Christian tradition that recites the Creed every Sunday, you you might know the Apostles Creed, which has as its ending this phrase. I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Amen. Or maybe you're more familiar with the Nicene Creed, which ends. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. So what do we mean by the resurrection of the body or the resurrection of the dead? What's going on here? What what are we actually hoping for? Uh, I was talking to someone just this last week about funeral traditions, and we were exploring how in some parts of the world it is the Christians that bury people whilst it is the other religions that cremate. That's not universally true, but it's true in some places. But of course, here in London, most funeral services, whether Christian or not, involve a cremation. The origins of um, the division between kind of Christians bury and, and others cremate Uh, goes back to the early centuries of Christianity. First century uh, Greek and Roman practice was usually to burn the bodies of those who died, whereas Jewish practice was typically to bury. And Christianity as a sect of Judaism kind of inherited the burying tradition. Um, And as Christianity became the dominant religion of the Roman Empire, so uh, the Roman Empire began to move over towards burial practices rather than cremations. And by the fourth century, it was the dominant practice to bury rather than cremate. As the centuries progressed, and certainly by the Middle Ages, um, a kind of a theology became attached to burial practice which asserted that in order to be assured of bodily resurrection at the end of days, you needed not only to have been buried rather than cremated, but you needed to have been buried in consecrated ground. And there are distressing examples from this country of unbaptized children or or those who have died by suicide or those who have lived with serious mental health problems all being denied burial in the consecrated ground of the churchyard which was held to believe that they would be denied resurrection. However, set against this, I mean, I've been in ministry now for nearly 25 years the vast majority of funerals that I've conducted um, have been cremations, not entirely, but certainly the vast majority. And yet, did you know cremation was only fully legalized in the United Kingdom as recently as 1902? In 1960, apparently 35% of people were cremated, whereas at the moment it's just under 80% and continuing to rise decade on decade. So, what's going on here? Well, I think the broader social trend uh, may affect the declining influence of Christianity within society, but it's interesting that Christians also now appear to be embracing cremation without difficulty. And I can only conclude from this that most of us, for most of us, whatever we think our resurrection is going to be, don't believe that it depends on our bodies, having been buried in the ground within a consecrated area. In fact, despite what the Apostles Creed says, I have a suspicion that most of us don't actually believe in the resurrection of the body as it is defined as the atoms that make up this body. On Good Friday, a couple of days ago, goodness, it feels like a lifetime. We read together the story of the crucifixion from Matthew's gospel, which includes the following intriguing cameo, which I did promise those of you who were here, I would come back to today. So this is from Matthew, chapter 27. This is one of those little passages that when you come to it, you sometimes think I'm sure that wasn't there in the Bible last time I looked. So here we go. The crucifixion story. Then Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and breathed his last. At that moment, the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were also opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. After his resurrection, they came out of the tombs and entered the holy city and appeared to many. If you're thinking, I don't remember that, you're not alone <laughs> This strange story that we only get in Matthew's Gospel is uh, clearly, as Matthew so often does, drawing uh, on on some uh, Hebrew Bible uh, material. It's drawing on a verse in the prophet uh, Isaiah, which says um, to people facing the death of invasion and exile at the hands of the Babylonians, That your dead shall live, their corpse shall rise, and those who dwell in the dust will awake and shout for joy. So this is originally framed by Isaiah as a message of hope to people whose lives were being disrupted by invasion, by people who were facing death. And he framed it as a message of uh, new life from death. Your dead shall live, their corpse shall rise. Uh, Matthew is also uh, almost certainly uh, nodding also at Ezekiel's vision of the valley of the dry bones from Ezekiel 37 and also um, the later text of Daniel uh, and his vision of resurrection to judgment in Daniel chapter 12. And uh, I I did a bit of reading around about this, trying to get to grips with it. And scholars are divided in what they think is going on here in this strange story. But it seems likely that Matthew is telling this story of the people coming out of their tombs and walking around and entering the city um, to try and convey the fact that the events of that first Easter weekend, the death and resurrection of Jesus. In some way challenge the normal presuppositions around death. What we have here in this story is dead bodies behaving badly. They're not doing what they're supposed to do. I mean if there's one thing we know about dead bodies is that on the whole they stay dead. And for Matthew, this story is conveying something significant. It's a sign of what Matthew and his community believe about the resurrection of Jesus. And so we get Matthew's wonderfully weird zombie apocalypse story. Bodies leaving their tombs, lurching around, entering the city. And it's a story that was influential on what later Christians came to expect for their own post-mortem experiences. This idea of people rising from their graves, breaking out of their tombs and ascending into heaven remains, for some Christians at least, an important part of their faith. But for those of us who are a little bit less sure about bodily resurrection, whose bodies will return to the ground, ashes to ashes and dust to dust, I wonder what resurrection might mean for us. Well, if the bodily resurrection strand of thinking is a bit over focused on the physical body, there is another strand of Christian thought that kind of over ignores the body. I've spoken uh, from this lectern before about Plato, the great Greek philosopher, who uh, lived about 400 years before the time of Jesus. And uh, Plato's philosophical teaching included something uh, that he called dualism. Well, he called it dualism in Greek, but I'm going to call it dualism in English. Um, This is the belief that the universe can be divided into two aspects. You've got on the one hand, the physical world. And then on the other hand, you've got the spiritual world. And the interesting thing about platonic dualism is that Uh, He said the spiritual world is the real world and that the physical world that we inhabit is merely a a kind of a poor echo of the spiritual, a poor shadow, uh, an inadequate rendering or copy of the true reality which resides only in the spiritual world. Anyway, Plato's teaching 400 years before the time of Jesus um, created the, the Greek and then the Roman world view where the things of this world, the things we can see and taste and touch and smell. These are of less consequence than the things of the spiritual world, things like truth and beauty and justice. Those are the things that really matter. And it was part of this system of dualistic thinking that began with Plato and and really rolled out throughout the Greco-Roman world. Um, As part of this, Plato and those who came after him developed the idea of the immortal soul. So uh, this is the idea that each person exists as a dualism. So like the dualism that exists in, in the wider cosmos of spiritual versus physical also exists within each of us. Each person is dualistic. We are our physical body, which according to platonic thinking is temporary, corrupting and inadequate. And we are also our soul, which is immortal and perfect and all sufficient. And so the Platonists thought that the soul did not die at the point of a body's death, but rather returns to the perfect spiritual world to reside for eternity. And if you're thinking this all sounds rather like everything you've ever been told about life after death, then you're right, because the Jewish world of the first century was a world deeply influenced by Greek thought and by Platonic uh, ideals. And as a Jewish sect of Christianity, Um, growing into the Gentile world. So Christianity expanded into a world dominated by Platonic dualism. And I'm going to put this quite bluntly. Popular Christian thinking about heaven owes more to Plato than it does to either Jesus's teaching or to his Jewish heritage, as we find it reflected in the Hebrew Bible. Most Christians these days think in terms of heaven as a kind of a separate place where one goes after death. And I think this is somewhat problematic because it can lead to people devaluing the world that they're actually living in or indeed the body that God has created them to be. You can see, can't you, how the platonic influence has come right down to us. This physical world doesn't matter. All that matters is heaven. There's a hymn that was popular in the um, 19th and early 20th centuries, written by a congregationalist minister from Sheffield called Thomas Rawson Taylor. And it starts with the following verse. And you, you may remember this hymn. I remember it from my childhood. I'm but a stranger here. Heaven is my home. Earth is a desert drear, heaven is my home. Danger and sorrow stand round me at every hand. Heaven is my fatherland, heaven is my home. Now I get it, I really do. For people facing a lifetime of trial and toil, of oppression and enslavement, the idea of a better future waiting for them beyond death is a compelling comfort. And I do not want to diminish that. But the problem with this thinking, though, is that a first century Jewish person such as, I don't know, Jesus would not have located their hope for a better future in terms of devaluing the creation of the here and now. Certainly, the Jewish faith of the time of Jesus had its divisions in terms of whether they believed in an afterlife or not. I mean, rather famously, uh, the Pharisees did believe in an afterlife, whereas the Sadducees denied any concept of the resurrection. And I remember the old Sunday school joke, the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection, which is why they're sad, you see. You'll never forget it now I've told you that. The desire for God's justice to be enacted post-mortem on those who seems to be getting away with evil in this life, coupled with a desire for reward for those whose lives were faithful but troubled. All of this was a large part of the development within late Judaism of a belief in the resurrection and an afterlife. But. The Jewish belief in resurrection was not formulated at the expense of this world. That's the key thing. You can believe in an afterlife if you want. You certainly could at the time of Jesus. Some did, some didn't. But even those who did didn't do it at the expense of the here and now. That is the legacy of Plato. Their faith, you see, was in God, their creator the one who lovingly sustained the heavens and the earth. And such a God would not scrap the earth in favor of a heaven as a holding tank for migrated souls, which is what Plato had thought. The truth is that the view of resurrection many of us have inherited, as I said, owes more to Plato than it does to either Jesus or Judaism more broadly. We aren't just passing through. Our souls aren't waiting to fly away, however much we may love that beautiful soul fly away, fly away, oh glory. It's great. But I don't think it's very Christian. So where does this leave us in our thinking about resurrection as we gather today to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus? Well, I think there are two key convictions that I want to offer to you for us to take away today. Firstly, there is the conviction, and this was a conviction shared by all the early Christian witnesses, that the resurrection of Jesus renders the power of death over our lives null and void. I'll say that again. The resurrection of Jesus renders the power of death over our lives null and void. Paul expresses this hope in his letter to the Romans chapter 8 verses 1 and 2. Therefore there is now there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. And he says it again in his letter to the Corinthians chapter 15 since death came through a human. The resurrection of the dead has also come through a human. For as all die in Adam, so all are made alive in Christ. Now, of course, humans still die. But the point that Paul and others were making is that the hold death has over our lives is broken because of the resurrection of Jesus. We do not need to live each day under the shadow of the twin powers of sin and death. There is good news here, friends in Christ. We can live our lives in the knowledge of our eventual death, but not enthralled to it, not enslaved by it. The hold that death has over people, a hold of fear and compulsion that is broken because of the resurrection of Jesus. But Simon, I can almost hear you asking. That's fine rhetoric for Easter Sunday morning. But what does it actually look like? And here we get to my second conviction, which is that our eternal lives are inextricably interwoven with the physicality of creation, eternally interwoven with the reality of God. I'll say that again. Our eternal lives are inextricably interwoven, our eternal lives are inextricably interwoven with the physicality of creation and eternally interwoven with the reality of God. You see, I do not accept that our souls are trapped in this veil of tears waiting to shuffle off this mortal coil as we make our way somewhere better. But rather, I believe that each moment of our lives carries eternal value, that each second that we live is precious to the God who is beyond all time. If Christ is raised, you see, then Christ is alive to all people in all places at all times. And that includes here today and now and you and me. And therefore, our whole lives from birth to death are held forever within God's eternal love. I believe that God embraces all of the creativity of our lives, gathering into the eternity that is beyond time and is enfolded in love. Everything that we are, everything that we do, everyone that we love, every thought that we have. You see, eternal life is not the spiritual equivalent of a final salary pension scheme that pays out at the point of death. Uh, however you were at that moment, whatever your whatever your state was then. I mean, those of us who have spent time with those who die with dementia will know that we do not want the end of our lives to define our eternity. And so all of us, our bodies, our actions, our prayers, our relationships, all of these are part of who we are in God's undying care. So for me, it's not a question of where we go when we die. Rather, it's a deep conviction of God's eternal love, which is real for us in the here and now and for all eternity. In opposition to Plato, the world is not something to escape, but a reality to embrace and within which to be embraced by love. All that ever is, is contained within God's love. All that exists is redeemed by the cross of Christ. Every act of evil is judged, found wanting and banished. And every act of love is valued and held eternally. And this is resurrection. So when we pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we are expressing our deepest hopes, the hope given to us by Christ himself that heaven comes to us on earth. Not that we go to heaven. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And when we pray for God's will to be done, we are praying for heaven to merge with earth and bring it and us to fulfillment. We are holding before God, the whole of the created order and in a world of environmental catastrophe and climate crisis and war and famine. We cannot afford, I'm afraid, the luxury of escapist theologies which devalue the earth in favor of a heavenly home. This is our home. It is the stage on which eternity is shaped. And all of this world, all of us, each part of us is loved by God and part of God eternally. And so we, too, are gathered in resurrection. This is resurrection. It is the hope of eternity. It begins at the cross. It is made real at the empty tomb. And it is our hope for the here and now and for all time. I believe this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God, amen.
2: With the words of our um, shared communion and and thinking about Simon's words to us as well and so much this morning that has been rich um, and maybe we can take those things away, but in a few moments of silence, let's just come before God and personally thank him for this morning, for this day of resurrection. God, our creator, our redeemer, our indwelling lover. As Simon has reminded us, all that ever is, is contained within your love. All that exists is redeemed by the cross of Christ. Every act of evil is judged, found wanting and banished. And every act of love is valued and held eternally. And that this is what true resurrection means. Loving God, we thank you for the mystery that you come to us disguised as our very everyday lives, that you're calling us to follow in the footsteps of the risen Christ as members of his body, to bring in your kingdom of love and light of justice and peace in this place, in this world, at this moment, in this era, where we live in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our countries and nations, in work out of work, in joy, in despair, in our triumphs and in our failures, in life and in our death. Risen Christ, help us by the power and inspiration of your spirit, freely given to us, to trust you that our lives are not meaningless, but cherished by you. We thank you that you never write us off, that there's no place where we cannot meet, where you cannot meet us and hold us in your loving embrace. We thank you for the mystery that we see in your suffering and death on the cross, that there is, um, that it is there in the darkness, that the darkest place of human experience that you have been and are there for each of us and for all the world past and present. And we rejoice that that place is not the end of the story but that you rose from death and that resurrection, new beginnings, forgiveness, hope, and renewal are forever springing up out of death and darkness. We thank you, God of all the earth, that you have built this pattern of death and resurrection into the very fabric of life on earth and out there in the vastness of creation. We thank you for the beauty of our blue planet, the life we see springing up from earth at this time of year. We thank you for all that you have given us on this earth and for all the potential that humankind has for enjoying the fruits of life and sharing this precious space with all other forms of life and for living in harmony with the ecosystems of the earth and with each other. So we thank you for the wonderful gifts of human creativity, for the arts and sciences, for ways of living where life is dignified by traditions of fairness, toleration, reverence and respect for progress in health and education for advances in human understanding and what you have revealed and are continuing to reveal to us about who you are and how we should live but we acknowledge before you patient and forgiving god that we have not always used these gifts that you've given us wisely um, or unselfishly so either in our individual lives or as human beings, we have um, sinned. We have not used those gifts um, for good, but in selfishness. As a result, we see our world being destroyed by wars, by our greed and exploitation. And we now live with the growing reality of climate catastrophe and the possibilities of conflicts that may end in the use of nuclear weapons. God of mercy and compassion, We cry to you on this day when we celebrate the victory of life over death that you would help each of us to renew our commitment to live out our lives as followers of the prince of peace in the service of others and of this beautiful world in which we live in simon's words this is our home it is the stage on which we on which eternity is shaped and all of this world all of us each part of us is loved by God and is part of God eternally. This is resurrection. This is the hope of eternity and his hope for the here and now. Thanks be to God in the name of the risen Christ. He is risen. Amen.
0: May the Lord bless
1: you in this resurrection season, as you experience new life in the company of
0: friends and share new with those who long for change. And may you know in your mind and experience in your heart the resurrection presence of Christ through his spirit. Amen.